to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. This morning, we begin our summer sermon series titled, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. For the last six months, we participated in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which culminated in theological concepts such as Ascension and Pentecost and Trinity. And now, for the next six months, the church calendar invites us to intentionally exist in a season known as Ordinary Time. During this season of the church, we are invited to grow and to cultivate life in this world. To use Jesus' language, we're invited to participate in a kingdom like heaven. But what exactly is a kingdom like heaven? Well, this new summer sermon series, we will observe several parables in the book of Matthew in which Jesus likens, rather than defines, that's important, Jesus likens a kingdom called heaven to the complexity and mystery of human activity such as scattering seed and resting in trees and finding treasure and casting nets. By exploring these parables over the course of summer, it's our sincere hope to encourage a community that more fully embodies a kingdom like heaven, which gestures toward the mystery of God and the life of Christ in this world. The kingdom of heaven. This is a loaded phrase. It's a phrase that often evokes thoughts about life after death or perhaps a particular tribe that includes some but excludes many, many others. And yet, these conceptions don't align with many other notions about the kingdom of heaven that we see throughout the Bible. And so rather than diving into a particular passage this morning, I want to begin this sermon series by first trying to situate the kingdom of heaven as a biblical theology. And second, I'd like to situate parables for us as literary figures so we have a better concept for how we are to see and to approach and to hear uh, these parables that Jesus tells Following this sermon, my hope is that we're better prepared to think about the fluidity of language and the rhetorical function of parables that do not intend to to perfectly explain something, but rather they intend to gesture, to point toward, to get us imaginatively thinking about a kingdom like heaven. Uh, But first, a biblical theology on the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You, Pharisees, will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. The kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. I will give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. It will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And that, you see, is it. That is every use of the phrase kingdom of heaven that can be found in the Bible. According to these verses, we could reasonably think some of these things. The kingdom of heaven makes some people want to repent. This is John the Baptist's phrase. Actually, it's his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, repent is a tired word. If you were here a couple summers ago for our series on wrestling with words, you'll recall that repent comes from a Hebrew word that literally means to return. So, to repent is to return. Well, return to what? To your deepest, purest, truest, and most honest self for which you were created. That you, like we, everyone, somewhere along the journey of our lives, lose. We lose ourselves. This must be what repentance means for you. See, you cannot return to something that you never had. And you cannot return to a place that you never lived. And so, repentance must have something to do with returning back to a place, to an honest, pure, original place from which you came in the first place. And going beyond the Hebrew to the Greek, the word repent is metanoia, meta, from which we get the word metamorphosis, so to change, and noia, which means mind. So repentance is to have your mind changed. It's a metamorphosis of the mind. Isn't that beautiful? John the Baptist, you see, is saying, return to yourself and think differently about it all which, according to John, has something to do with the kingdom of heaven that has come near. 
the kingdom of heaven, we're told, makes some people repent. It also makes some people become eunuchs. <laughs> and you thought that having your mind changed was difficult. Uh, it seems that the kingdom of heaven belongs to some, like children, but not to others, like the religious. That's a weighty thought, isn't it? For those of us who identify as religious people. According to Jesus, there's no formula of words that a person can say that guarantees entrance into the kingdom of heaven. For we're told that some will say, Lord, Lord, but not enter. Isn't that interesting? I think we should remember that the next time a person tries to boil the whole thing down to repeating a few words in order to get quote-unquote in. Uh, we're told that the kingdom is near, it's in the present, it's now, but we're also told that the kingdom is far away, it's something out there in the future. And we read that violence can be done to the kingdom. Isn't that peculiar? It's as if the kingdom is somehow physical or, or maybe emotional to which violence can be done to it. And we're told that the kingdom of heaven has secrets. And it's important to notice that the kingdom of heaven is primarily explained by comparison, often using the word like, which is a simile. And similes, of course, are used when language is felt to be inadequate to try and communicate an abstract or difficult idea. Oh, and then Peter is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which is a metaphor. We're told that children enter into the kingdom of heaven easily, but that it's more difficult for the affluent to enter. And it seems that for the religious, entrance into the kingdom of heaven is nearly impossible. And finally... It appears that you can enter into the kingdom, but that you can also exit out of the kingdom. Like when you're childlike, whatever that means, Jesus says that you are actually in the kingdom. However, when you are religious-like, Jesus says that you are out of the kingdom and may even keep others from the kingdom. And so participation in the kingdom is not a one-time static decision, but some kind of dynamic participation or lack of participation. Isn't the kingdom of heaven a curious thing? I really like that word, curious. In fact, I think this is a good place to begin with curiosity. Or perhaps another helpful word could be humility. Because clearly the kingdom of heaven cannot be neatly and tightly defined. In fact, it appears that for those who believe that they actually understand the kingdom, or, or perhaps those who think that they are in control of the kingdom, Jesus seems to say that those are the ones who are actually the furthest away from it. And I'm not quite sure what this means for systematic theology and doctrinal statements, but it, but it needs to be thought about. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that the kingdom of heaven is beyond comprehension. But we cannot miss the ways in which it is described. The kingdom of heaven is primarily described through parables and stories and comparisons and metaphors and similes. And this, you see, is a different kind of literature. Especially in light of the Enlightenment, in which we want the truth delineated and defined and completely comprehensible, if it is to be truly true. And yet, 
Just because Jesus uses parables and stories and comparisons and metaphors and similes, this doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven is not real. It's just a different kind of real, a different kind of truth than many of us are most familiar with. And honestly, sometimes the question, what is truth, isn't even the most important question. For example, and I'm going to fabricate this just, just a little bit, but, but for example, Mike, tell me the truth about the first time you kissed Jen. Okay, I kissed Jen on her doorstep at 9.47 p.m. on November 3rd, 1994. Yeah, 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 but, but Mike, tell me the truth about the kiss. Okay, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, the kiss that she gave me was a 9.87. And the kiss that I gave her was, was a 4.75. Actually, according to the 1972 flowchart for rating first kisses, I'd say that it would be more accurate to rate my kiss at a 4.83. <laughs> now, you see what I'm getting at here, right? This is the wrong kind of truth. It's the wrong kind of language, and, and really it's the wrong kind of question when it comes to a kiss. Mike, tell me about the first time you kissed Jen. Tell me the truth about the kiss. Well, I don't know about the truth of it all, but, but I can tell you this. My mind was racing. My palms were sweating. My heart was all a flutter, and I felt like somebody had hit pause on a movie but it was our movie. And it was just Jen and me in silence except for our bodies moving toward each other and I could smell her hair. It, it was like sage. <laughs> we were kind of like hippies back then. And my nose, it pressed against her nose. And I can recall that they, that they slightly stuck together a bit as if our noses had been glazed in Cupid's honey. Oh, and her lips. Her lips were like those strawberries at the end of season, not too late when they get all smushy, but just right and perfectly sweet when they leave that stain on you that you never want to fade away because it would mark the end of something that you're never ready to say goodbye to. Oh, that kiss was kind of like that. And that, you see, that is the truth about a kiss. It's a different kind of reality than a 1 to 10 scale, and I think it's closer to the thing itself, even if my words are imperfectly true. Because the only way that I can tell you about the kiss is to use words to describe ideas spinning in my mind and emotions whirling in my heart and blood pulsing in my veins. And yet, however... This language absolutely gets you closer to the truth that was my embodied experience. And to limit my expression of truth to formulas and graphs and numbers and didactic statements actually keeps you further away from the truth of my kiss than parables and stories and comparisons and metaphors and similes that imperfectly but more deeply give expression to some kinds of truths and realities in this world. Now, with all of this in mind, Jesus uses parables and stories and comparisons and metaphors and similes as imperfect but deeply true expressions for the kingdom of heaven. And we, in order to honor and to behold this kind of truth, 
we will need to be very careful to, in, to deny our enlightenment proclivity to boil the kingdom of heaven down to statements and formulas and certainties about what it is and who belongs to it. Because to do so is to lose the deeply good and overwhelmingly wonderful truth that is the kiss. The kingdom of heaven near. The kingdom of heaven at hand which is a dynamic, electric, pulsing, engaging intersection of humanity and divinity in this world, here, now, and today. And this brings me to a literary figure called the parable. Uh, the word parable comes from the Greek word parabolo. Parabolo is derived from two Greek words, para, which means from, and balo, which can be translated to throw, or to force, or to put, or to move. Thus, parabolo, a parable, is a statement, it's an idea, it's a way of seeing and being that Jesus throws out into the world for people to ponder. More often than not, Jesus uses parables when he's asked by his disciples or by the crowds or by religious leaders to explain something or to define something that's important to them. For example, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is asked by an expert in the law to define who his neighbor is, Jesus throws out a parable. And in Mark chapter 11, when the chief priests ask Jesus to defend the authority by which he speaks... Jesus throws out a parable. In Luke chapter 12, when someone in the crowd says to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, Jesus throws out a parable. And throughout Matthew chapter 13, the chapter containing the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, not once, not twice, but eight times, Jesus uses parables. And here's what's so interesting about this. Although the disciples or crowds or religious leaders are the ones who incite Jesus' parables, we rarely get glimpses into how they respond to the parables that Jesus tells them. And when we do get glimpses, we usually see the disciples or crowds or religious leaders confused or frustrated. And so two points here. First point, because we rarely see the disciples or crowds or religious leaders respond to Jesus' parables, the primary point of the parables is their impact on us and our interaction with the parables that Jesus tells. You see, uh, we are the ones being invited into pondering and interacting with Jesus' parables. But this isn't easy to do, which brings me to a second point. Uh, because of the times that we get glimpses into how characters in the text respond to Jesus' parables, uh, with confusion or frustration, we're being warned that it's much easier to just dismiss Jesus' parables than it is to humbly and honestly consider their depth and texture and mystery and meaning. Ah, oh, but their meaning... The complex, provocative, and mysterious meanings of parables have so much to teach us if we could just slow down. If we could just open our hearts to realities and truths that, that like a kiss, cannot be contained by prosaic language. And, in particular relation to this new sermon series, if we could just play with, dance with the idea of a kingdom like heaven, 
Our hearts and lives may be stirred as they are when watching a movie or opening our hearts to a song or opening our souls while reading a poem. For truly, heaven is not a truth that can be contained by formulas and graphs and numbers and didactic statements. No. Similar to ideas being gestured toward through the arts, the kingdom of heaven at hand is a dynamic, electric, pulsing, engaging kiss that is best communicated through parables and similes. For truly, as we'll see throughout this sermon series, the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like. That's as as close as we can get to it. The kingdom of heaven is like scattering seed. The kingdom of heaven is like rising bread. The kingdom of heaven is like a patient farmer. The kingdom of heaven is like finding treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like letting down a net. In this morning's reading from the Hebrew scriptures, we heard about the Israelites fashioning a calf in the image of God. And in our New Testament reading, we heard about Paul helping to name the Athenians unknown God. You see, these ancient stories point to a very human proclivity, which is ancient and modern, all the way up until today, which has always been in search of fashioning and naming and trying to explicate ultimate reality. And yet, rather than seeking to explicate May we here at Pearl grow to appreciate a kingdom like heaven, full of mystery, full of goodness, full of belonging, and all that is truly good, into which we are invited to participate day by day and moment by moment. And let us pray. God of life and love, Too often we create you in our false images, making you into that which is less than all that is good. Release us anew to dance and play and imagine life in your heavenly kingdom, even today. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.